Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Customer experience teams, 74% of them focus on the actual rational aspects of the interactions and not on how customers feel. At the beginning of a project, we're trying to find out what drives value. And we've been doing it now since 2005. Given all this data, what we've never done is really looked across the piece and said, what is it telling us? He made that, Zesha. But I bought other things in order to be able to make it. Sorry, you were were saying (laughs) something before I made this all about me? So, Ryan, what did you do in the first lockdown that we had? Oh, gosh. In the first lockdown, I developed this new cool hobby, Hobbit, of Hobbit. This new hobby. You created a new Hobbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got really into Hobbits, Hobbit culture, dressing like Hobbits. <laughs> no, I, I developed this new hobby of slowly descending into madness, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> I think a lot of people did that. You just sped up a bit recently. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And grew a lot taller, stopped wearing the fuzzy foot slippers. I got into my woodworking over the first lockdown and started uh, doing more of that when I was not allowed to leave my home. Right. Excellent. Well, Zetcho is our guest on the podcast today. Zetcho has worked for Beyond Philosophy for a number of years now. How long is it now, Zetcho? 13. <laughs> 13 years. Wow, blimey. 13 years. And of course, that's not an unlucky number. That must be a lucky number. (laughs) So, and at the beginning of lockdown, obviously everything was totally uncertain. And uh, Zetcho has always led on uh, the emotional signature work that we've done, which is this sort of specialist form of research. And we had this conversation about, well, we've actually, you know, done hundreds of these pieces of research and we've never really looked at the data that we've collected as a totality. So Zetcho went off and, and spent lockdown looking at data, which sounds really good fun. Not as good as fun as, as trying to be a hobbit or whatever it was that you were doing. I'd like to point out those are not in conflict. You could do both. Zetcho. You could look <laughs> yeah. at data while dressed as a hobbit. I'm just going to suggest that. Yeah. Then Zetcho decided to write a book, and the book has just come out called The Big Miss. So, yes, which is really good. Congratulations, Zetcho. Yeah, congratulations. That's really good news, mate. So really well done. It's not easy writing a book. I know over the last couple of years we've spent many an hour talking about it, and but there's something special, isn't there, when you actually open the box and you take it out and hold it in your hands for the very first time. Absolutely. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> So we got lots and lots of data. Tell the listeners a bit about where the data came from, how much did we have, what came out of it, and what's the sort of the key learnings from it. And then at the end of the show, I'm sure you'll tell people where they can go off and buy this new wonderful book. So like you said, we have this database that we've collected after so many projects with clients and so many customer research uh, projects that we've done. 
And like you said, you always told that we're sitting on a gold mine. But I think because it was like so big that we didn't quite find like or think of how exactly are we going to analyze it. I have an idea <laughs> when everything came to a stop. But I was thinking one of the things is like, well, how valuable are relationships to organizations? How do you prove that? And the second one is, again, every time we do some project with organizations, they share their data. We've seen lots of journey maps. Most journey maps follow this infinity customer lifecycle loop, like the buying experience, the, the purchase, uh, and then the using the product experience. So you have brand learning about the product, purchasing, um, using the product, billing and payment, and so on. I was thinking, well, I've seen so many journey maps. Well, where in these journey maps is the place for customer relationships? And how important are those customer relationships compared to the typical touch points that are on those journey maps? And again, how important are emotions and what role do emotions play in that customer experience? And how valuable are those? And again, from so many organizations that we have worked, there's only a few that have actually calculated and can come and, and show this is how much relationships and customer emotions are, are worth to us. So those were the key questions that, that were in the back of my mind. And so I went to the data and essentially the, the analysis that I based the book on was based on almost 20,000 customers, about 24 large organizations, which fall within nine industry sectors like finance, healthcare, telecoms, utilities, and, and many others. In this process, I analyzed something like 59 models and they fall almost like 50% were B2B. So very B2C, B2B. And in this process, those like 19, 20,000 customers, they've answered something like a million questions. Again, those customers come from US, Canada, Europe, obviously UK, all over the place. Over the place. Yes. So I think very representative and global study across different industries. And so I think there are like three main findings from this. Let me just uh, interject here, Zecho, because the audience would have heard us talk about this emotional signature that we do at Beyond Philosophy. So this is where we go in and we ask at the beginning of a project, we're trying to find out what drives value. And we've been doing it now since 2005. Given all this data, what we've never done is really looked across the piece and said, what is it telling us? And this is what you're referring to now. Yes, absolutely. What was the key findings from it? Well, there are many, but the key I would, I would say is this. Number one, we found that emotional attachment, so things like the organization care for me as a person, listens to me, understands my needs, is responsive, is trustworthy, I feel like I have a relationship with them, and things like that. We found that this is by far the biggest driver of value compared to the other typical aspects of the other touch points like the product experience. So this is uh, competitiveness of prices, reliability of products, things like that, compared to brand and advertising aspects, compared to certain customer service aspects, communications, and, and so on. This is by far the number one driver of value. And this, for me, the reason I call the book The Big Miss is because I did not discover America here. So there are other pieces of research that similarly found emotions to be key drivers of value for organizations. Maybe I went through a different route, but this is not new. The big miss for me is like, okay, emotions are very important, 
but organizations don't really have a strategy that is based on data and science on how to approach evoking certain specific emotions in customers. And essentially, I think they disregard it. Actually, there is very interesting research from Gartner. So Gartner are big and they have a lot of statistics that saying customer effort score drives retention and reduces the cost of interactions and so on. And they found interestingly that how customers feel affects 58% of that customer effort score in those surveys. But interestingly, what customer experience teams, 74% of them focus on the actual rational aspects of the interactions and not on how customers feel. So they basically <laughs> completely neglect this and, and focus on, on other things. So I think this for me is the big miss. Now, the other interesting thing is this. You won't hear customers saying emotions are important for us. How do we know? We've, we've asked this so many times. People would say, and again, interestingly, we have this data in this research. So I found in 74% of the customer groups that we analyzed, 74% of the groups say something like product price or product reliability is the most important thing for them, okay? And only about 2%, so like I think it was like one group or something, said something related to emotions is the most important to them. So basically, everyone's saying product is the most important to me, and they say emotions are far down the line of, of list of importance. So basically, almost like they're not important for us at all. So Ryan, why is that from a human perspective why do we say you know that price is really important but actually it's not i mean is it a societal thing that we you know just don't talk about emotions or what it's not limited to just emotions so like large parts of psychology research going back 50 years or more basically is built around the idea that people are are not well calibrated for understanding their own motivations and so if you ask somebody why they did something, it's very easy for them to give you an answer. We can concoct these stories very easily. But, you know, Zetjo, as you said earlier, it's not new that people are disconnected from what they want. And, and I want to push back. Zetjo was a little bit kind of dismissive of that. Like, oh, this is new. In science, that's good. Like we want things that like stack on top of each other and are all consistent. So the idea that and Zetro is just being humble, but, you know, giving credit to others who have found something similar, that reinforces that, like, the findings that you have here. Like, if it was wildly out of line with what's been shown before and, and there was no connection, that should give us pause. So as a scientist, I like the fact that it's broadly consistent with other groups of finding, and then we're going to take that and push it forward and discover something new. So, yeah, on both of those, the fact that emotions matter, the fact that people are poorly kind of calibrated to understand what's really driving value for them is also not new. The fact it, it extends far beyond emotions. We're, we're bad at knowing why we're doing stuff in all kinds of ways and for all kinds of stuff. What's interesting to me is that it sounds like you really do have kind of a unique data set for answering these questions specifically. A lot of people try to wring insights out of whatever data they have, which may or may not be related to the questions they're interested in. You guys have been interested in these questions about how emotions drive value for literally decades now and have been asking similar types of questions for all kinds of different organizations. And that's why you've got a, a data set that's not just 20 years of consulting data. It's 20 years of data 
on this specific question of the relationship between mo- customer emotions and value. And now you're able to look at it in this kind of new and interesting way, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Sorry, Zetro, I, in- I interrupted you, but yeah, just wanted to get Ryan's view. Yes. To, Ryan, to, to your point, like people are not good at articulating what really drives their behaviors. There's this guy called, and maybe I'm, I might mispronounce his name, but I think Professor Michael Gazzaniga, <laughs> something like that. He says that we have this interpreter brain. In other words, if I ask you, why did you buy this watch or why did you buy that piece of art there? And because you're professor, I built you... this piece of art, such a because <laughs> skilled worker, and not that I'm bragging at all, but I, <laughs> I did. He made that, Zetcha. But I bought He's other right. things in order to be able to make it. Sorry, you were, you were saying something <laughs> before I made this all about me. Yes. So if I ask Colin, why did he buy his Jaguar back in the time and things like that? The fact is, people give rational answers. And Professor Gazaniaga calls it that we have this interpreter brain. There's these other aspects in the experience that subconsciously made us or affected our decisions. And you two write in your book, The Intuitive Customers, about how the rational and the intuitive systems interact. So we have these aspects working underneath our consciousness. But when people ask us, well, why did you do that? We always come up with some rational answer. We're never short of an answer. Why did I buy this watch or this phone and uh, this iPhone or the computer and things like that? So that's one thing. I think the other interesting thing, and again, you, you guys talk about this in your book, is like, I'll go back to what Professor Kahneman says. He distinguishes, obviously, between the experiencing self and the remembering self. And he says that we don't, the people don't choose between experiences. They choose between the memories of the experience. So when, when it comes to time for people to make that purchase experience or renew their insurance, they base it based on the whole year that they have of that experience, right? But the interesting part is like emotions have been proven to be closely associated with memories, okay? So for us to have a memory, and that could be pos- uh, a good memory, you remember something, uh, you went on a nice holiday concert, or you felt badly and you, you injured yourself or you, your son got hurt, those memories are closely associated. The higher the emotions, the more closely associated that is with, with emotion. Of course, there are some extremes where this is not true, but by and large, emotions are closely associated with memories. And so people make decisions based on those memories. So I think this is one of the psychological explanations why they play such an important role. So what are the other key findings from the book then? We know that, or we've proven again, that emotions are a key part of any experience and that whole relationship. And, and again, I don't want to put, make this light of this, but being able to put a number against that is absolutely key. You know, we're dealing with a client at the moment whose financial department are turning around and saying, well, we'll only do this if there's a business case attached to it. So rather than just going, well, we think it's a good idea, to be able to turn around and go, this is the amount of business in dollar terms that you would be able to generate if you do these things, then that's really powerful. So what else came from it? Well, the second thing is, is this aspect about the deception, that people say we want this, but actually what really drives their behavior is that. And I think this is key because and in the book, I provide a lot of examples, both from our research, but also from from other organizations that wasted millions of dollars 
working on that because they were deceived by what customers say they want. So, so that's big. And then the other thing, again, is like if you do research and if you include emotions, you get to some, some findings. But if you don't get include emotions, you would reach different findings, right? So by not including emotions, actually, organizations are missing about 50% of the picture. And we know in the real world, for good or bad, people have, have emotions. Can I just interrupt for a moment? Because, Ryan, that goes and talks about, doesn't it? Because we um, did that podcast a couple of weeks ago called The Myth of Experience, where the book talked about a wicked learning experience. So if you remember, a wicked learning experience was where you think you've got all the information about what's actually happening in that experience, but actually you haven't. And so to Zecho's point, that's exactly it, isn't it? I'm not asking customers about their emotions, so therefore that's not entering into the decision-making of what we're doing, but actually it drives 50% of the decision-making. And if I've not gathered that information, then I don't know that it's affecting me. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, that, that research is all about individual learning and where it can go wrong and how we are dependent on the environment that we're in, in terms of the amount of feedback and the type of information that we're getting. I had never really thought about it from an organizational standpoint, which is what you're suggesting. And I think, I think you're right. I think that's really interesting where organizations can also create wicked learning environments for themselves where they are not getting the right types of feedback. And so therefore, their experience is not going to be true to reality. And so I think that's the point that Zetra is making. Like if you're not if you're not asking the right questions, then you're not going to be getting the right kind of feedback to improve your decision making. And so especially if you're leaving a blind spot to these emotions, you're never going to be able to respond to that appropriately. I love that tie-in. I will uh, put a link to that podcast in the uh, show notes for people. How are you going to grow your market when everyone is competing on the same things? What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since 2005, we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you. There was a quote um, I liked, I put it in the book. People fail to act on what they fail to notice until <laughs> failing to notice what they fail to notice. I'm now misquoting things, but basically the point is like people fail to act on what they fail to notice. And that's interesting. So then the reason we call this big miss is like, well, okay, well, what does that mean organizations should do? And I think there are some strategic things on an organizational perspective and some tactical ones. Uh, maybe the tactical might be interesting. I'll just mention just very quickly on the strategic aspect. This is like starting to measure emotions, doing more implicit research, finding the difference between what customers say they want to drive value, focusing the design on emotions, measuring emotions in the employee experience as well, and other strategic things like that. I, I discuss uh, actually seven of those in the book. But I think it's interesting on a tactical level, there's certain interesting 
quick ways and, and tweaks that organizations can do. So my advice to organizations is maybe to start with one that might be simple. And it's about showing that you know customers. So that for me is like the first thing, because how can you evoke certain emotions, showing trust or making people feel cared for, valued, or show it, or trying to build a relationship with them if you don't show that you know them? So that for me is an interesting first step. And, and an interesting story, and this comes from, of course, we have stories from our work the first time I started to think about this, Colin, was when we were working with American Express and, you know, on their cars, they have member scenes. And this for me is like super simple, but super powerful. And we knew how powerful that was for customers. But when I was writing the book, I said, well, I need to find some evidence and, and show things. And then I dig out some research that American Express executives are saying, we know that this is very important. And there was a quote from a customer that says, He's thinking of canceling the card, but he just jiggles every time he sees that member scenes on his card and showing that he's like, it's been 10 years. So we know this works. An interesting um, recent uh, experience working with a client was, which again, showed how important that is. But I'll, I'll tell the story from Cheap Heat and Dumb Heat in their book. It was called The Defining Moments. So they say that there was um, the fitness uh, gyms in the States, YMCA. They hired two statisticians to look at their customer survey data, you know, so many years and find what is driving customer behavior, kind of like the thing that I did with, with our database. And customer in their case, similar to what I found, they are saying, uh, we want fancy new modern fitness equipment. And that's what executives were used to hear. That's what they thought they should do. But they found that what was actually driving customers to renew their subscription and go more to the gym were like things like employees in, in those gyms calling customers by names. So showing that you know customers is one of those things. Then I think personalization takes this as an extra step and we know how personalization drives value and now AI can help with those things. Another interesting thing, and Colin, you can tell your experiences equipping customer-facing teams with the right skills. And actually, it should be you and Ryan can, can tell the story of how you created a manual to equip the customer-facing teams to address customers on, on emotions. Maybe I'll just give you the word to, to tell that. The example I always use with that is I walk home at night and I walk in the front door and I shout hello to my wife, Lorraine. And within a one-word response, I can tell you how she's feeling. I can tell you whether I should walk straight out the door again because I've done something wrong. I can tell you the things that I should do that will make her feel better if she's not particularly happy and so on and so forth. So it goes down to the fact that people don't just listen to the words that people say. They listen to the body language and the gestures and the tones and everything else that, that has been said and the way that people are, are saying things and picking all of those things up. And one of the things that Ryan and I have worked on, on is therefore going, okay, so if a customer is walking into an experience feeling this, frustrated, disappointed, whatever, how do you convert them from feeling this emotion to feeling the emotion that you want them to feel? And this goes back into the big miss, the book that drives value. So if we know that feeling valued drives value for you, you get money back for it, 
then you know how do you convert them what are the things that you need to do and say what's the body language should be and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and uh, in the book i give the example they actually did research with a couple of uh, luxury stores in california where the employee of the store was wearing fmri sort of uh, helmet that captures his brain activity and uh, the researcher this professor Maybe I'll miscall the, the name. We're murdering everyone's names today, aren't we? <laughs> Paul J. Zuck, I think, was his name. So the researchers theorized that, well, there's evidence that the emotions that I feel, I can display, and then you could, your brain activity would mirror my brain activity and would feel the certain the same emotions. And so they showed that when the sales rep in that store was portraying emotions associated with trust and building trust, that predicted with 68% accuracy or something that, that the customer would actually buy the product and the amount that, that, that they purchased. So the, the same thing as you were saying, if we can instill this trust and they measure it through the sales agent, that can drive sales. I'm thinking about it. What we'll do is we'll, again, we'll include these links in the show notes for people so they can go through to the research. Well, those are in the book, <laughs> in the references. For oh, the those book. are in the book. There you go. Well, even better, we'll include a link for the book. I would have thought we'd have done that, mate, anyway, to be totally honest with you. So the point is, these ceremonies, like in the contact center and in in store, they can be created, okay? And as long as you're intentional about the emotions that you're trying to evoke. I think this is what most organizations miss. They focus on what is the customer doing? And not on how and what emotion should we evoke in the customer so that the customer is doing what is valuable for them as, as an organization. Sure. I love that this approach. And I want to acknowledge how advanced it is from the perspective of understanding emotions. I mean, there's, there's like layers of improvement that organizations can make based on just this short conversation that we've been having here. Like, there's the, the question of just identifying that emotions are, in fact, a thing that they are a thing that human beings feel and they influence us. Just that is an insight that is profound and missing too often. Then there's this conversation about the specific emotions that you want to instill and that you want to encourage. And do you have plans and tactics around instilling those? And then there's this discussion about what are the emotions that people are entering into this situation with and what are the emotions of the employees that they engage with? Because those will then influence each other and help determine our success at getting them into these goal emotional states that that we want. Like, start anywhere. (laughs) Sure. If you haven't engaged with emotions at all, start there and just acknowledge that emotions, whatever it is you're selling, emotions are a part of that decision process for your customers. You're already ahead of the game. You're ahead of most of your competition at that level. But that is just the baseline level and that there's these, stages of improvement that we can go on in terms of anticipating where customers are. I've told this story on the podcast before, but one of my engagements with Colin was for a, a health insurer. And we sat in on their some of their phone bank as people would call into the health insurer to communicate information. And it, it wasn't until I sat and listened to some of those calls, I, I recognized when you're calling into your health insurer, there's a good chance you've just experienced something terrible for yourself or for somebody else. And you are walking into that with powerful emotions. And so if you are an extremely emotionally intuitive employee, 
you're going to handle that with care, but not everybody is. So what can you do to train your employees up so that the ones who are less intuitively good at this will be in a place that they can acknowledge and support the customers in the emotional state that they're in and that you can give them a path to get them into a better emotional state. There'll be some version of that no matter what you're selling. It may not be that extreme, but just knowing this stuff and having a a game plan, which I, I assume is what is in the book entirely in terms of how to approach it, is you can do a tremendous amount of good. Yeah, have a game plan. That's a good way to finish. Yeah. And so just building on that, so what practical advice, Secho, would you give people? So somebody, obviously, the first piece of practical advice is go and buy the bloody book. Yeah, (laughs) And we'll put a link in the notes. The most practical advice. Absolutely. But for anybody listening to this that then thinks to themselves, okay, so what should I do from this? What would be your best bits of advice on what they should do? In the book, I provide like seven practices uh, to improve their aiming so that they don't miss on emotions. But if it's like, if I'm to summarize it with one thing, I think it's like to focus their design on evoking strategic targeted customer emotions. Ideally, they would know that those are the correct emotions that will drive the, the desired customer behavior. But I would just say, focus your design efforts on that. Because again, most people do journey mapping or they do design digital experiences, but they're focused on the steps like customer first click here, then they do this, then they do that. But if they were to focus on, well, what can we do to create a feeling of customers are cared for or we value their relationships or we create the feeling of trust, then they'll probably do some things in a different way. Sure. Yeah. No, good point. I know the book's obviously available everywhere. And again, we'll put a link in the notes. But if people want to get hold of you, Zecho, how do they do that? Oh, well, there are many ways, but you can find me on LinkedIn. And there's not many people called Zecho, <laughs> Z-H-E-C-H-O. Obviously, Twitter, in Beyond Philosophy's website. If you visit that, you can find me there as well. Yeah. And obviously, again, link in the show notes. So thanks very much, mate. And again, congratulations. It's really a uh, big milestone for you. And it's very good. Yeah, the big mess. And we will be having another one of these sessions in about a month's time. So look out for that as well. We're going to get Zecho back on the show where we're going to talk about this stuff in a bit more detail and take it down to the next level. So we look forward to talking to you all next week. Thanks very much. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.